Hi, I'm Jay Miller, and on today's episode of George Fox Talks, we'll be talking about 19th century Quaker women. They were tenacious. Today on George Fox Talks, we're in the studio with Robin Rogers-Healy and Carol Dale Spencer. They're the co-editors of a new book from Penn State University Press called Quaker Women, 1800 to 1920 Studies in a Changing Landscape is part of Penn State's new History of Quakerism series. Uh, Robin is a professor of history and co-director of the Gender Studies Institute at Trinity Western University. And Carol Dale Spencer is the previous associate professor of Christian spirituality at Earlham School of Religion and an adjunct professor of spiritual formation at Portland Seminary, which is a part of George Fox, and a previous professor at Portland Seminary um, before heading off to Earlham. So it's wonderful to have you both in the studio today, and um, really excited to talk about this book. Um, we are talking a little bit on the show about how in some ways Quaker women have been of interest to scholars for some time, but this is also, I think, a time where scholars are revisiting a lot of that interest. So I'm curious if the two of you could talk a little bit in light of the book, how Quaker women have been studied in the past, and then what you're hoping this book contributes to the study of Quaker women. Well, um, I think in the past, mostly it was famous elite women that were well-known, like Elizabeth Fright, hagiographies would be written about her, and a few others, maybe Margaret Fell, Lucretia Mott, you would hear about them. But there's just so many women that people don't know about that did amazing things. And Quaker history, Quaker women's history, really didn't begin until like the 60s or 70s with women writing feminist history. And then mm. they discovered this treasure trove of material about Quaker women that was in archives that no one had ever read for 100, 200 years. And it was just like amazing. And so there was a lot written at that time, particularly on the 17th century, mm -hmm. and then some on the 18th. Not as much on the 19th, except for the women that were involved in the women's rights movement. A lot of that was um, written about. Yeah. And like Rosemary Radford Ruther, she discovered Quakers and said, oh, they were the first feminist this is a movement. historian. Yeah, historian. Yeah. History. Yeah. Yeah. A the yeah. theologian and a historian mm. and discovered Quakers and kind of put them on the map at that point. Yeah, yeah. she did. And I think one of the things that, um, so you raised the point, Carol talked about the fact that um, the writing of women's history is, and Quaker women's history was in that as well, really started to happen in the 60s and 70s. And in that context, I think one of the reasons that women... Um, that the 19th century women who were studied were the women who were involved in the women's rights movement mm -hmm. is because those were the questions historians mm -hmm. asked mm -hmm. in that period. Mm -hmm. Who were the women who were at the forefront of feminism and mm -hmm. at the forefront of women's rights? And so those were the folks that were studied. But there are so many... Um, in part, I think, because Quaker women did leave records and Quaker women wrote things, mm -hmm. that the there is for those of us who are historians in, or those of us who do literary studies, anybody who does textual-based studies, finding those um, sources has provided us with a huge um a huge amount or a lot of material that we mm -hmm. can actually 
um, dig into. But one of the things that was surprising to us as we went into this project was discovering how little had actually been done on 19th century women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the focus has tended to be on the early Quaker women because I think that they, well, they were certainly very radical for their time. Mm-hmm. And I think this, this a part of the reason that they have been of interest to scholars, not just those who are Quakers, but those who study Quakers, is because they stand outside the traditional norms mm-hmm. of the period. Mm-hmm. And that tends to be really exciting for scholars to examine. And and so the 16th and 17th century, um, well, not 16th, 17th century uh, Quaker women, have been studied a lot, but there hasn't been very much done on 19th century Quaker women, except for the big names. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think we're getting more into Mm -hmm. the 19th century Mm -hmm. now, but except for women like Elizabeth Gurney Fry, Lucretia Mott, the... um, the, Yeah, we we aren't getting the stories the same. We haven't. And and the the 19th century... Definitely focused on these radical Hicksite women and kind of mm-hmm. left out the Orthodox women. And they were quite active and they were for women's rights too, many of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the woman that I did in my chapter, Hannah Widow Smith, was a fervent feminist mm-hmm. who was all trying to convince Quakers that women should have the right to vote. She had a hard time. Quakers didn't always appreciate that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they didn't support it, yeah, for the most part. It was really this minority of of women that were trying to get the the Quaker movement to get on board here. Well, you believe in equality of all people, so shouldn't women have social and political rights as well? And, Mm -hmm. you know, they had a lot of opposition. And as your book shows, Mm -hmm. they were even working for equality within their meetings. Oh, exactly, yeah. The way meetings operate, which we can talk about a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But you brought up Hicksite women and Orthodox women, Mm -hmm. and I wonder if we might pull back a little bit and talk about Quakerism in the 19th century, um, especially on the American side is where those terms are relevant. Um, Although Orthodoxy is relevant in Britain, or evangelicalism is relevant in Britain. But I kind of also wonder um, if maybe women haven't been studied in the 19th century as much because there's also the Quaker 19th century is so complicated. It is complicated. Um, yeah, and you, know, you do have to do a lot of toggling back and forth and figure out who's who. Could. So could you just say a little bit, could you give oh. a, a quick overview? You do this in the introduction of your book very nicely. Um, but just especially for listeners who may not be familiar with the history, mm-hmm. what do you need to know about Quakerism in the 19th century? Go ahead. Schism. Schism. Division. Turbulence. (laughs) It it was an incredibly turbulent period because, um, so yes, we talk, and and I think in the American context, those who are familiar with Quaker studies will be uh, aware of what is known as the Great Separation, which is the Hicksite Orthodox separation that happened, it started 1820, well, the separation itself began in, uh, was in 1827 in the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, then spread to New York Yearly Meeting and other meetings in 1828. But it didn't end there. The mm-hmm. Hicksites divide, went on to divide further, as we discuss in our introduction, and the Orthodox went on to divide further, as we discuss in the introduction. So what happens is that by the time we get to the end of the period covered in this book, there's an incredibly fragmented mm-hmm. Quakerism. So to talk... and and. May, I think you you hit on something, Jay. Maybe this is a reason that there hasn't been a lot of discussion of 19th century Quakerism, 
because scholars look at the 19th century and Quakerism and think, well, which Quakerism, which thread am I going to follow through the mm-hmm. 19th right. century, right? And that it, and and um, it, it that's really challenging. But you get like a patchwork quilt mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Quakerism. Or my favorite um, way to envision it is the tree. You know, a tree, and mm-hmm. you get these various branches. Mm-hmm. On the family tree. Oh, I wish we had a picture of that. Our pastor has it in his office yeah. of this tree that has like, you know, a million branches. I mean, mm-hmm. all these little. Which is the story yeah, of yeah. Protestantism in the U.S. Yes. At the exactly. Same time, right? Yeah. So this exactly. is part of like not just the Quakers, Quakers are not like different from their society. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in this sense. Absolutely, absolutely. But the these divisions opened up spaces where women really stepped into the. Um, into leadership, mm-hmm. into conversation. It, it, and and I think that's one of the reasons that studying 19th century Quakerism and studying women within that context gives us an opportunity to look at the ways mm-hmm. that women did uh, move into leadership mm-hmm. in really meaningful ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we could really say that the divisions were a positive for Quaker women. I think they were because it opened up so many more opportunities for them and got them thinking about not only within their own meetings, but within the greater society, what they could do. Yeah. So I see it as, um, yeah, a positive, like uh, a a silver lining for women. A silver lining for painful experiences, because these were really incredibly painful experiences. And I think that um, for those of us who are like, um, people of faith ourselves, and f- for whom a faith is meaningful, when we look at historical actors, and em- we can empathize mm-hmm. with the fact that that would have been a really painful, painful mm-hmm. time. It wasn't like just saying, "Well, that's it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to be this kind of Quaker anymore." I, I be, you know, and my family, because these divisions. Um, did not just divide meetings. They divided families. They divided communities. And um, it and it wasn't like if there was a division that the folks in one who who split off, let's say, in one schism, all got up and moved away. Some did, but these people had to live together. They had to live in community still with people who were no longer part of their meeting. And it was very painful. Yeah. That reminds me of a passage in, um, this is an edit collection, right? So you're mm-hmm. the editors and you have chapters in the books, but also chapters by other scholars. And in um, Thomas Ham's chapter, he talks about, this is a quote um, from his chapter where he says, we have numerous examples of women making up their own minds about the schism. Mm-hmm. In Clinton County, Ohio, Lydia Sabin wrote to her Orthodox family that, quote, offend or please who it might, she must say amen to Elias Hicks's doctrine, according to a letter from Nathan Hunt. For Rachel Hicks on Long Island, the decision came only after real agony of soul. Quote, among all the members of our society, there was not another who was tried as I was. Mm-hmm. So so I love, mm-hmm. that just gives you a real window into yeah. people's experiences. Mm-hmm. A, a question I have on that is like, going back to the original sort of great schism, in like 1820, 1820, um, what was the role of women in that schism? One of the, one of the things as I was reading your book, um, 
or the reading the different chapters, in that Ham chapter, he seems to indicate that he doesn't think gender was part of the schism. Robin, in your chapter, you highlight the role of transatlantic women writers, and we'll get into the specific um, minister you wrote about there, but I'm curious, just big picture, what was the role of women in the schism? Was it significant in terms of thinking about gender, or was it really just a debate about doctrine? It was mainly a debate about doctrine. I mean, the role of women was pretty established in Quakerism, that women had at least spiritual equalities. So that wasn't part of the debate. But I think that the difference of, of perspective is, were they involved in the theological debates? And they definitely mm -hmm. were. Mm -hmm. You certainly show that in your chapter. Yeah. And, and so I think you're right that Tom um, takes a slightly different approach. And it's one of the things I really appreciated about this being a multi-authored collection mm -hmm. is that mm -hmm. we were able to bring in voices and, and not say, this is the only um, position you can take. Um, I think where I would, um, so, so one of the things I do is gender studies. And so for me, that means reading against the grain and reading, um, into the silences mm -hmm. that are in the records. Right. And so I, I think I would say if you were to read the records and say, well, who are the big voices in the, um, on the Hicksite side, there's, um, Priscilla Cadwallader, who was right. a, an, an incredibly important, vibrant voice. Um, but I think Tom would argue, other than her, there, there, there weren't women at the forefront of the traveling ministers in, in the same way that Hicks and some of the men with him, um, the, the men who aligned with him were involved. But I would suggest, if we look at this in a different way, as Carol said, women did participate in these theological discussions because these theological discussions were happening in homes. These theological discussions were happening in meeting. And imagine um, visiting ministers. And I, yes, we, we talk about the English ministers who came and they were sort of the celebrities who would arrive. Mm -hmm. But there were many, many, and reading any of the 19th century Quaker records in, in this period, you see Hicksite and Orthodox women, women on both sides of that divide, um, busy in ministry in traveling mm -hmm. ministry, sometimes locally, right? Just within their monthly meeting or their quarterly meeting. Um, and one of the things that I found, um, I find interesting is that sometimes, you know, a woman would have a leading to go on on ministry and then somebody on the other side, another, a woman on the other side would have an equal leading mm -hmm. to go, <laughs> right? So I would contend that women were active. Mm -hmm. in in the schism. Mm -hmm. And it certainly affected them deeply. Uh, so were they at the forefront of the arguments? Tom would say no. I would say, well, but if we look at the silences, those women were participating in the in the um, decisions that eventually resulted in the separation mm -hmm. of Quakerism and not just America. the silences, because we have letters. They wrote yeah. so much. Quakers right. were just prolific writers of everything. That's mm -hmm. why there's so many records. It's just incredible yeah. how much mm -hmm. material there is that hasn't even been actually read yet. 
I mean, and I think there's still in, things to discover. Yeah, even in just commonplace mm-hmm. books, mm-hmm. like right. you know the the things that they would record, and and the cho- uh, schools. It was affecting this. The schism mm-hmm. affected schools, and mm-hmm. so Quaker students. That it was everywhere, mm-hmm. right? And I, I mean, coming up to Thanksgiving here, thinking about um, the fact that yeah, you're. You, it would be the same as, are we going to have the uncle? for dinner who we disagree with. We're going to have the Republican or the Democrats here. (laughs) And those those arguments were happening throughout the community. And it wasn't just men participating in those arguments. Women Mm -hmm. were participating in them as well. Mm -hmm. And and theologically, they were taking positions on doctrine. Yeah, could you say just a little bit more briefly, so if, if there was a woman who was kind of wrestling with this and thinking about do I kind of go Hicksite or do I go Orthodox? What was that? Obviously, that's a, there's a lot of complexity mm-hmm. even within those different schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you just could give a brief characterization for our listeners, like what did those choices come down to theologically um, while also acknowledging it's probably not just a theological mm-hmm. choice? Yeah, sociological too. Right. Yeah. The, richer, the richer Quakers would tend to be Orthodox. And so they say, yes, yeah. the studies and the- And urban, urban rural yeah. divide. Well, the even so, I would suggest and and have argued this in uh, I think in this book and in other places that nineteenth um, century evangelicalism is what becomes a defining feature of Orthodox mm-hmm. Quakerism and evangelical Quakerism in the UK, and that in those so there the um, important factors were. Uh, the divinity of Christ. Do you believe that uh, Jesus was divine? Um, the uh, the atonement. Yeah, the atonement, the atonement is, and How that's right. The necessity that? yeah. of the atonement, and was Scripture divinely inspired? Mm-hmm. These these were the issues that they were arguing about. Mm-hmm. So for Hicks. Um, Elias Hicks, who's Elias. the minister. Yeah, that's Hicks, right. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. New York. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. right. Elias Hicks, who really was sort of at the forefront of um, leading what he believed was a reformation in Quakerism. Mm-hmm. And he he was not gathering followers around. He wasn't saying, right. like, come be Hicksites right. with mm-hmm. me. That was not his. He was leading this reformation mm-hmm. um, in Quakerism. And what he wanted was he wanted Quakers to move away from their involvement with the world. Mm-hmm. because Quakers had become involved in social reform movements and he was concerned that their involvement in social reform movements was exposing them to too much interaction with other non-Quakers who were tainted by evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And yeah, What's so interesting about him is, though, he has more like liberal viewpoints theologically, but he was very conservative on social. Yeah, I, mean, I think very you, can, you can obviously think about it in terms of theology mm-hmm. and that's a way maybe because of where we are in history, Quaker history today, mm-hmm. we look back and we're like, oh, these are theological differences. Mm-hmm. But you can also look at that and think like, there are also like different kinds of sensibilities here of mm-hmm. evangelicals or like Orthodox Quakers are really innovators. They're almost progressive in a certain mm-hmm. sense and that yeah. they want to be involved in social reform, social activities. Um, they don't just want to stick to the old ways that, you know, there's a case to be made that they weren't exactly flourishing. Um, you know, certainly, you know, enough people found evangelicalism a, um, appealing that they didn't kind of stay in the quietest mode of the 18th yeah. century mm-hmm. or stay with Hicks. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas on the Hicks side, it's really there's a more of a, almost a traditionalist 
um, kind of desire to maintain mm-hmm. a set of practices, you know, mm-hmm, and maybe mm-hmm. even it's a little more practice oriented. And I would think they're probably Hicksites who are maybe kind of theologically um, more orthodox. Oh, or absolutely. More, but yeah. who are, mm-hmm. in their mm-hmm. terms of their sensibility, really loyal to older Quaker yes. practices mm-hmm. and Quaker sort mm-hmm. of distinctives. Yeah. Yes. The silent meeting was still very important to right. them. And yeah. that, yeah. that, that waiting spirituality. The waiting. Yes. Even the relationship to scripture, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. there's, um, you know, Quakers influenced by evangelicalism are really focused on like intensive Bible study. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that they pick up from the broader evangelical yeah. world. Um, whereas kind of older Quakers know the Bible really well. Right. But also really are very much want to be a spiritual experience yeah. all the time and are worried about um, maybe some, uh, I'm not a uh, rote study of scripture. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't study um, scripture and analyze it. You right. just right. read it devotionally and let right. it speak to you through the yeah. spirit. That's right. the That's right. Yeah. Traditional so devotional is a good way to put yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so after the schism, again, these go different directions, but how would you characterize like what it meant to be a Hicksite Quaker woman? versus an Orthodox Quaker woman? Not all that different in many ways, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you can read quotes from, or, from Orthodox women that you could put in the mouth of Hicksite women. So they weren't all that different in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And, but there was a, a vast uh, diversity within women. I mean, some of the women, the Hicksite women, were uh, against women's suffrage, strongly against some of the more evangelical women were for it. So, you know, they, it's really quite diverse. So it's hard to put a label on them. It's hard to put a labels that we would use today on these women. Sure. The labels don't work. You can't draw straight lines from that time to our time. Mm-hmm. So the woman I wrote about, Hannah Widow Smith, was very evangelical. She was part of the more holiness Quakers that was another kind of branch that develops. But she was a universalist. She believed everyone was going to be saved. That's not an mm-hmm. orthodox belief. And she called mm-hmm. herself a heretic, and she was proud of it. So, I mean, you just can't put her in the same categories mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. we think of today. Yeah, yeah and I think that um, what Tom shows, especially in his chapter, is that after... So, so there was that schism, that initial decision mm-hmm. to divide. Mm-hmm. But then... In, on both sides, on both Quaker and Orthodox sides, as um, Carol has said, you get these differences. And out of those differences then emerged um, further disagreements mm-hmm. as women, um, you know, some some women were very, very traditional mm-hmm. in terms of not wanting to um, get involved in politics at all. Others really wanted to. To be involved. So I think that it's difficult to identify the exact, an experience to say this would be the experience of Hicksite women. Mm -hmm. This would be the experience Mm -hmm. of Orthodox women because um, where women lived made a difference Mm -hmm. if you lived in an urban center if you happened to live in the you know on the frontier of vermont that was a different experience altogether so the the daily lives of women and what they did um was i think contextually situated Mm -hmm. as much as it was theologically Mm -hmm. driven Mm -hmm. 
that being said, there were these differences in in the meetings. In and I think what happens is you do get um, some Hicksites leave the some Hicksite oh, yeah. women left. Quaker identity became more fluid yeah. at this period because of time. Women the, could change their associations. Yeah. So yeah. for for women who let's say wanted to get involved in anti slavery work. Um, and their meetings were saying, no, you cannot be involved in anti-slavery work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so women like men who wanted to do this work, individuals were put in a position where they had to make a decision mm-hmm. on the basis of what mattered most mm-hmm. to them. And, and certainly through the 19th century, things like slavery becomes a really defined, and one's position on slavery, that became a really defining um, factor of identity. Because, you, you know, I mean, there were Quaker meetings that, uh, there were Quakers who fought in the American Civil War and meetings, dis- and, and we think, what? Right. How can that be? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there's a significant number. I don't remember yeah. what it was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. How yeah. can that be? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, it, and what happened was that meetings decided to overlook Mm-hmm. that behavior be- mm-hmm. because that was a case where it's well do we put the um, testimony against war up against the testimony against slavery and which one mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. I need mm-hmm. to focus on more mm-hmm. right now have either of you read the graphic novel discipline yes so, have you heard of yes. this no. it's exactly about this yeah. kind of thing um it's by Dash Shaw I believe yeah. so mm-hmm. uh, it's a really interesting kind of comic book graphic novel ah. that draws on historical documentation that kind of addresses just this sort of issue and this tension. Um, could we talk about abolition and slavery a little bit? Because I feel like that's one of the things, um, you know, in many ways what this book is trying to do is complicate our kind of understanding or broaden our understanding of Quaker women. Um, what about Quaker women and abolition? You know, I think in the popular imagination, Quakers are remembered as like anti-slavery activists, abolition activists. Mm-hmm. Um being on the right side of history yes, yes. and these kind of things. Um, what What's the picture that emerges in the book of how women um, and Quakers more broadly interacted with issues of slavery and abolition in the 19th century? Well, that's complicated too. <laughs> uh, a lot of women did get involved in anti-slavery, but I would say that they were generally the minority. Mm-hmm. Um, abolitionism was considered a very radical position. Mm-hmm. And you had to disobey the laws if you protected slaves and allowed them to stay at your home and hid them and put them on the underground railroad. That was breaking laws. And Quakers, you know, were very like, we don't break laws. So it was before the Civil War, it was very radical. You could get you could get uh, disowned for being an abolitionist in some meetings. And some did. Mm-hmm. Levi Coffin was disowned from yeah. his from his meeting. Mm. Um Although he was welcomed back later because after the Civil War, then they were all heroes. Then things when you're changed. disowned, you can't. <laughs> Go to meeting for business. You right. can't it, be involved with like it's the not life like of the totally meeting. You can still avoid. Yeah, you can yeah. still but, go to meeting, but yeah. you couldn't be in in the business meeting. Which maybe is a plus, depending on how exactly. You do that kind a of lot stuff. of people probably didn't mind at all. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't that big a deal, but it did make a statement. You know yeah. that your meeting did not approve of what you're doing. Yeah, you essentially become an attender in certain ways. Exactly. You know, you're not a part yeah. Of the yeah. You couldn't make decisions. So. Uh, but after the war, that changed because then they saw that well, we were all on we were on the right side of history, and now you know we were all abolitionists. But racism was still embedded in Quakerism, and and we looked at that particularly the chapter 
on, on Sojourner Jones, Truth. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you can see that, well, there's a whole book written, um, friend, uh, friend, we, uh, friendship, fit for, but fit, fit for, for friendship, freedom, not, but fit for freedom, freedom but not, not for not friendship. friendship. Yes, yes. But yeah, I think Vanessa that's July. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Which uh, was like mind blowing to a lot of Quakers to discover that, oh my, we actually were part of these racist systems. And yeah, we, essentially, like yeah. meetings were segregated. Segre- in terms there were special black sections for them yeah, to sit in. A bench yeah. that you mm-hmm. can sit there. Yeah. And, and yeah, the, and I think that it is this complicating narrative that we need to that that needs to be interrogated right mm-hmm. we need to interrogate this notion that all quakers were always pacifists were always abolitionists were always on uh you know always supported equal rights mm-hmm. they were always on the quote right side of history and mm-hmm. there there are problems even with that term even of though course. we use <laughs> it right but but um the so the the women like British women got very involved in um, anti slavery work by raising money, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that there's a lot more work that needs to be done in that um, on in that area as well because that's that also is a complicated story. Mm-hmm. Quakers British Quakers made a lot of money mm-hmm. from. Slavery. Slave trade. They didn't the, have slaves, that's owned right. slaves, the, the, but the they were involved trade, in the trading of the, slaves. Yeah, that, that's yeah. right. Like th- there was a lot of, and so uh, I think that I, I don't want to um, us to go away and think, oh, it was only American Quakers who had to address this, right? Mm-hmm. Like that that right. uh, British Quakers also were mm-hmm. involved in, in this. But um, I think that one of the things that Steve Angel's chapter touches on is just um, how challenging the experience of Quakerism for black individuals who mm-hmm. attended Quaker meeting or right. wanted to become Quakers right. and couldn't, how complicated that was. And, and this is work that really needs to be developed further. Mm-hmm, I, I feel mm-hmm. like we only have just, t- we, we just started scratching the surface of some of these stories. Yeah. You talk, it's called studies of a changing landscape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in some ways you're trying to put a lot of these women on the map, right? Mm-hmm. you know, like, so, um, Steve's writing about Sarah maps, Douglas, he's yeah. also teasing out sort of Sojourner Truth's relationship yeah. to kind of Quakerism. And, um, I think that's a, a useful kind of place to maybe pivot the conversation a little bit, because if we remember 19th century Quaker women, we already brought up Elizabeth Fry, a prison reformer um, in England. But in our American context, it's often people kind of like the milieu Sojourner Truth move, um, moved in. So um, Amy Kirby Post, Lucretia Mott, um, people who are involved in abolition or women's suffrage or these kind of things. Um, and that's kind of coming out of the Hicksite tradition. Um both of the women you write about in your chapters uh, are from the more broadly orthodox mm-hmm. evangelical side, um, and and you draw out really interesting things about them. So I wonder if you've kind of brought both them up mm-hmm. um, already, but I wonder if we could go a little bit deeper into like you know the women you wrote about and why you found them compelling for thinking about Quaker women in this period. Um, I don't know if either I think it, either one of you want to. We'd be going. You've brought Whittle Smith, who was a little more like mid-19th century, mid to late. Robson would have been earlier. Yeah. Maybe let's start with Robson. We can kind of work chronologically. Okay. So Elizabeth Robson was um, an English minister um, who 
traveled in ministry a lot throughout um, England, and then came to North America as part of, in advance of the separation. So there were a group of English Quaker ministers who came. Anna Braithwaite was another um, woman, uh, but there were men as well. Elizabeth Robson's brother came, and it, it was almost as if the London Yearly Meeting said, who are our big players? Let's mm. send them. Mm. And and they did. So Robson's story is interesting, I think, for a number of reasons. She's interesting because of what she did. She's. I also am fascinated by the records that she left, mm. which are so, and I talk about this in a way that I wouldn't normally discuss in, a, in doing... Um, historical work, but the way that they they are so highly curated mm, by her family, family before they were donated mm-hmm. to the archives. And, and so that is, it's almost as if this is the narrative we want to leave. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so um, I, I would love to be able to dig into her further. But Robson came in um, uh, 1824, she was in North America for four years. She left her family yeah. for four mm-hmm. years. She traveled thousands of miles, visited every meeting. She, um, Which is amazing, but also mm-hmm. not atypical. For no, no. Ministers women did that. and yeah. women ministers. And they started that yeah. in the 17th century. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. But she, she is... It's like she grabs on and she holds on. And and so one of the things that's fascinating to me, and I, I originally encountered Elizabeth Robson oh, 20, more than 20 years ago mm. when I was doing work on the Upper Canadian Meetings, what is today Ontario. Oh, mm-hmm. And I found it interesting that the ver- like she landed in Philadelphia and the first place she was sent to or the first place she visited was she she went you know up into upper canada and i would love one of my goals is to be able to do some interdisciplinary work with somebody who does gis geographic information mm-hmm. systems and actually map her journeys sure. i think that would be really fascinating to see okay what what can we learn from actually looking at those locations mm-hmm. but she digs into this she um she was formidable i think mm-hmm. is how i would mm-hmm. describe her she was formidable she um had strong opinions she was not afraid to engage powerful men in meetings, in those opinions. Um, She also, though, describes some of her personal hurts with, you know, when Mm -hmm. she attended meeting and I think was not well accepted. She and but she was supported by a a group of women Mm -hmm. um, who assisted her along the way. And, um, you know, thousands of miles in very difficult circumstances and, you know, holding public meetings. It wasn't just it. This is what I find fascinating is this would have been in the what I would call the backwoods of the frontier, some real entertainment for non-Quakers as well, Mm -hmm. because you get these strong, really um, 
strong women speakers who could come and speak extemporaneously for over an hour. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they would use the courthouse, they would use other um, denominations, churches, and they would fill them and people would come. And Mm -hmm. um, so... Is this part of the like penumbra of the Second Great Awakening in yes, the early night? Yeah, it's in the early yeah, 19th absolutely. century, right? It's, it's so. very much a part of it, it, and certainly that area, like you know, Northern New York State, burned over district, right? And and you and she goes deep into that mm-hmm. and um, and contests those um women so she she's she comes back she and her husband actually her husband um came with her the second time she returned and um i haven't done as much work on those records but uh, she there is an extensive collection of material in her hand that I think has been, I find it interesting that it has not been um, used very much. Mm. And I think that's in part because she was Orthodox. Mm. And I think sure. that, that that had she taken um, a more, what we today would consider more liberal or progressive mm. mm-hmm. position, I think that um, modern historians would be more sympathetic mm-hmm. to her. So... One of your suggestions at the end of that chapter, speaking to these tensions between Hicksite and Orthodox, is that you sort of speculate that perhaps there is a gender dynamic in the schism in that Hicksite men felt flustered by Orthodox British women ministers coming across and trying to um, secure Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm just curious how... How speculative a point? How is that? uh, You frame it in a somewhat speculative way. I'm curious just to push on that a little bit and kind of find out what you think. Well, I think there is very definitely a sense I I get from some of the men's posturing and language that how do you, a woman, come into our house Mm -hmm. and tell us what to do? And and there there's this um, they the equation of that activity with the American revolution, right? Like mm. there, and that's why I, I say there is this paternalistic right, the kind British of approach, yeah, yeah. right? Yes. You know, because they couldn't get in during the war of 1812. Exactly. Right. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's this sense of, or a, a British maternalism too, if you're kind of going with that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I, I think that the Hicksite men did just, we don't want to have, you know, Stay away, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> and and, um, and and yet, you know, Robson. She just she is tenacious. She keeps pushing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that it uh, before being more conclusive, I want to still read a bit more. But I mm-hmm. think it's I think it's what I would call informed speculation, and mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. the I'm a literary mm-hmm. scholar. I'm all for speculating, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that it can be. Mm-hmm. I can imagine it, right? I mm-hmm. can imagine why um, individuals would have taken mm-hmm. those positions, mm-hmm. and, um, and and I can imagine Hicksite men being upset about these British folks coming in, and especially these women, mm-hmm. and trying to tell them their business. Mm-hmm. 
Carol, uh, Hannah Whittle Smith could also be described as tenacious. I believe, oh, absolutely, yes. But in a later period, can you tell us what part of the 19th century was she a part of, and then what what did you want to write about with her in yeah. your chapter? So she was born in 1932. So she's definitely like a next born generation. after the schism. Yeah, after the schism, 1832. 1832 yeah. Sorry, <laughs> and died in 1911. So okay. she kind of covers this period, the kind of the whole period when all these changes are happening. And she was a Philadelphia Quaker. Orthodox, but her meeting was very influenced by Gurney. So this is another mm-hmm. split off of the Orthodox, who are even more evangelical. But the Orthodox are still not quite Orthodox as far as, you know, Orthodoxy and Christianity as a whole. They're not totally, they're a little bit more like an alternative Orthodoxy. But the Gurneyites become more evangelical. Mm-hmm. That's where I think mm-hmm. evangelical, because I don't think you could call the Orthodox actually evangelical in that sense. But Definitely the Gurneyites were. Well, one thing, and I'll just flag Mm -hmm. if listeners haven't listened to our episode on Joseph John Gurney from Mm -hmm. season two, Uh, you can go back and listen to our conversation about that. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes, you know, again, like Gurney sort of becomes this embodiment of like evangelical Quakerism. Mm -hmm. He's at the fount. He was a very traditional Quaker. He stood up for all like the traditional Quaker Quaker practices, um, you know the different Quaker sacramental theology, mm-hmm. all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I, I'm just flagging that. I think you're mm-hmm. absolutely right that um, it's not until the late 19th century that the like supercharged right. Quaker evangelicalism <laughs> really comes in. Because you have the whole Wilburite thing too, yeah, which doesn't really pop branch. up in here no, too much. No, we don't, don't have, think. we don't cover the Wilburites. Uh, the Wilburites no. always get snubbed. They yeah. do, um, they do. The anyway. Beaconites in the UK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, go on about Smith. Well, Smith is interesting and um, because she grows up in this kind of very conservative but progressive kind of orthodoxy with the Gurneyite influence. And at the time that she was a young woman, there was, within Quaker meetings, you kind of had to decide if you were going to be plain or if you were going to be gay. <laughs> that was used in a very different way. Mm-hmm. But whether you would follow the traditional plain dress and plain speech or whether you would be more worldly, you mm-hmm. would be more open to the world. And she had to come to that decision. Some of her friends decided plainness and some not. And she decided plainness wasn't for her. But she was very deeply spiritual. Mm-hmm. And she um, is very, um, I would say, disenchanted with the strictness of Philadelphia uh, yearly meeting. They're very conservative. Even the Hicksites, everyone in Philadelphia is conservative. They're all very wealthy. She was part of the like Philadelphia Quaker aristocracy. They were. Mm-hmm. They had a mm-hmm. lot of money. And this is a whole cl- social class issues we don't cover a lot in yeah. our book. That needs to be a whole nother volume. Yeah. yeah. But she um, she discovers the holiness movement, and it's when she has to go to. Um, Millville, New Jersey, and she discovers these uh, working class people who are part of this new revival movement. Mm -hmm. And she is drawn into that. And she always wanted to be a Quaker minister and preach. And that gave her a lot more opportunity than she had within the Quaker meeting because she was Mm -hmm. trying to reform the Quaker meeting and open it up. And and they were like, no, 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 no. We're going to stay with our, our traditions. And so she left Quakerism for a time. But her identity was always as a Quaker, and she rejoins later. And she also eventually moves to England. So she's part of this back and forth mm-hmm. um, North American Quaker and British Quaker. 
But very early on, she is drawn into the women's movement. She joined with the Bloomerites. She was like 19. Now, she didn't wear bloomers. Bloomers were like a radical dress reform mm-hmm. movement, but mm-hmm. she always wore a kind of Quaker kind of dress. So mm-hmm. she didn't wear it, but she was very much in agreement with the ideals of the bloomer movement. Spiritual bloomers. Spir- she she was on. a spiritual bloomer. Mm-hmm. So she was very early on pretty radical. It's not like this happened later. This was way before she wrote her classic book, which most people are aware of who know her, The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. Mm-hmm. That's how evangelicals know her, by this book, which was um, probably the most widely read book to be written in the holiness movement and still read today for spiritual seekers read it. But she also wrote a lot of other books, including her autobiography, which is actually her best book, but most people aren't as aware of that, where she tells her whole story and how she comes to universalism, which is very early on, even before she wrote Christian Secrets. She was a universalist. It doesn't come out in that book. Mm-hmm. But she was kind of publicly kind of known for being you know, a heretic, and she was very proud of it. She writes about that all the time, <laughs> proud of being a heretic, and how you know, she's going to face opposition because all pioneers have to face opposition. So she's mm. an incredible woman, and she's just uh, as much of a radical feminist as Lucretia Mott, but most uh, evangelicals only know her one side of her, mm-hmm. and, she, they, and she's misinterpreted. I mean, I've read... Um, some books where it says that uh, Hannah Widow Smith believed in uh, submission to her husband. She did not. She was challenged patriarchy in all its forms, Mm -hmm. and yet that's how she's remembered. So it's so interesting how followers through time will cast their heroes in a certain light, Mm -hmm. and it's not at all what they were like. Mm -hmm. If you read her autobiography, she she said to—she wrote letters constantly— um, if she had been on social media, oh my gosh, she would have loved it. But she wrote letters like every day. There's volumes of letters. Mm-hmm. I haven't read them all yet, so I still have some work to do. But she told everybody that she was going to write her autobiography and she's going to put all her heresies in it, which she does. <laughs> so three chapters, she tells about how she comes to her position of universalism, which she thinks is biblically based. She was very a believer in authority and inspiration of scripture, mm-hmm. but she took a, like a spiritual kind of interpretation, which is my chapter. I write about that. So she puts her whole story in there, and in the very first um, publication, it's all there, but later that's all deleted out. Mm. And no one knows that, you know, they've, they're missing like a big a whole segment of her life because it's, it's uh, edited out of her book. So what's also interesting about her is that she becomes more and more, I would say, progressive as time goes on. She was eventually attracted to the socialist movement. And that's a whole nother area. We don't touch on that in this book either, but a lot of Quakers were actually drawn into Christian socialism. Mm-hmm. A lot of even evangelicals. In the late 19th yeah, century. late 19th century. Because you talk about Chartism, yeah. which yeah, there's Chartism. not in Britain, in which Britain. doesn't get quite the same. Yeah, Quaker but in America, well, even the women's temperance movement, Frances Willard was also very interested in socialism. I don't think that she joined the party, but she became basically. Uh, a Christian socialist. And so does Hannah, and I have to explore more of this part of her life. Hmm. She starts giving labor union speeches. More of the social gospel is kind of where she sure, ends up. that makes sense. Yeah. So her her whole evolution of her um, her path, her spiritual path, is very fascinating to read. And I can really relate to that. I think a lot of contemporary women mm-hmm. can relate to her life, unlike mm-hmm. Rope said. <laughs> you yeah. did mm-hmm. particularly like, I really liked Hannah. And she was a strong woman. She had a great 
uh, sense of humor. She had a lot of tragedy in her life, but she was always like transcended that and she was always upbeat and positive. So there's a lot to like about her. Yeah. <laughs> well, that brings in terms of whether we like or dislike mm -hmm. our historical yeah. subjects is a good segue into a question I wanted to ask. You know, your both this book, your chapters in this book, they're doing a lot of things like complicating our understanding of a figure, finding mm -hmm. hidden mm -hmm. dimensions or retrieving mm -hmm. someone who just hasn't been appreciated at mm -hmm. all for various kind of reasons. And I, I sense that this book is a part of a much bigger trend in the study of Quakerism mm -hmm. that's kind of about reevaluation, mm -hmm. um, reevaluating certain sort of Quaker myths, certain stereotypes, or even just like certain kind of fo mm -hmm. focuses that we've had mm -hmm. for studying Quakers. Um, and I'm wondering kind of how you thought about some of those tensions between, you know, I think in the you to go back to the opening question of like that initial interest in Quaker women because of the interest in kind of like social activism mm -hmm. in the 1960s. So um, they're initially kind of studied because they're admired. Mm -hmm. um, and now, the you know, we're both aware of the shortcomings of not just Quaker women, but Quakers sort of writ large. We've talked about that with race in the 19th century in some ways. Um, I'm curious... So I sense a tension in a field or studies that kind of have hagiographic hey, or even just hagiographic hey, origins or even just origins where there's admiration for this mm -hmm. historical subject to a field now where there's that relationship's not the same and there's a desire to maybe to complicate mm -hmm. or look at kind of hidden angles. Mm -hmm. How do you think about that tension in the book and for yourselves as scholars when you're studying people like Robeson mm -hmm. or Smith? Mm -hmm. Well, for me as a scholar, I, I think that for for us as we approached this book and worked with the authors, mm -hmm. um, we we wanted to to complicate the narrative and complicate stories, but that there wasn't an agenda of saying, well, we have to make sure we say all of the bad things mm -hmm. as well as the good things. There right. was none of that. It was just we we need to understand these individuals as fully human individuals. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've noticed especially I would say, I've noticed this in my teaching and it has affected the way I've approached my own scholarship. In my teaching, I've noticed with my students, probably in the last decade, but very definitely within the last five, six, seven years or so, this need to want to see heroic figures as entirely heroic and villainous figures as entirely villainous. Mm. And and so I've worked with students to try to help them to understand that all humans are complicated figures. Mm -hmm. Good people do bad things, things that we would qualify as bad. People that we think of as bad people do good things. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that's what, in order for us to tell the whole story, a, a more, a deeper a story that provides a deeper understanding of Quakerism in the 19th century, I think we need to under, we need to allow the, quotes, bad stuff mm -hmm. to sit right along the good stuff. So it can't just be these triumphant narratives. Mm -hmm. there, there has to be a sense of um, people did things that we today would maybe find 
um, difficult to deal with. I, I don't think anybody wants, there are no Quakers today who would say, yes, let's segregate black people in, you know, on their own mm-hmm. bench, bench or section yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. Like nobody. And, and we, we wish that wasn't part mm-hmm. of the history, but it mm-hmm. is part of mm-hmm. the history. Right. Yeah, I think they had a legacy for today. Exactly, and so then we that's right. Yeah, Yeah. but that was so much a part of the culture that you know Quakers accommodated the culture just as every other tradition did, Mm -hmm. and they had to do that to survive in some sense. And so, very few people were able to kind of transcend their culture, Mm -hmm. but we have a few people like John Woolman who seemed to be able to do that Mm -hmm. and could see beyond, you know, from this like God's eye view of culture. But very few people can do that. And we have to think of ourselves today, you know, what are our blind spots? You know, we're looking at Mm -hmm. post-colonialism, imperialism, and racism, and how it's all, uh, you know, embedded in in everything. But what are we missing? You know, Mm -hmm. there's probably something that down the road, Quaker historians are going to say, well, this new Quaker series of history, we need to write <laughs> yeah, eight right. more volumes because they've missed this they piece. They really yeah. got Healy that wrong. and Spencer they were got off it, the rails. They got it wrong. <laughs> yeah, Quakers, Quakerism and all traditions are going to be revisited and exactly. reinterpreted mm-hmm. all the time. And it's that's just going to okay. happen. That's a good that, thing. That yeah. is because I have always approached all of my scholarship as part of a conversation that is ongoing. Mm-hmm. It's not the, the you know, my contra. I contribute to what I see as an ongoing dialogue or conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not that here is the end of the conversation. It's just this is part of an ongoing dialogue. Yeah, that's great. That's very inspiring. I enjoyed reading the book, and I think that's a great place to end. So thank you so much for your work on this book and all the great contributors that contributed as well. Um, if you're interested in reading the book, there's a special discount code that you can find in the description to this episode in the show notes um, for 40% off through Penn State Press. So please check that out if you're interested. And thank you once again, Robin and Carol, for coming on today. Well, thank you for thank inviting you. us. Yes, this has been enjoyable. Yeah. Yes, very fun. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.